morning. Welcome to church. I'm glad you're with us. My name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians 4, please. Um, if you have a journal, I'd encourage you to get it out and uh, maybe write down some things you might feel God's talking to you about. I've found uh, journaling in my own life to be uh, profoundly meaningful and uh, help me actually remember things. I just tend to forget stuff. Um, so I just encourage you to maybe um, experiment in that practice. Let me pray, and then we'll get into the Word. Jesus, Father, help us um, understand that we've, we've sung to you in worship, and now we're going to open your Word in worship. Um, it's all worship, God. We've come to, to declare your worth, God, to marvel at your beauty. So Holy Spirit, would you rest on our hearts, God, this morning? Father, would you give us the peace of the Holy Spirit? God, allow us to sit with Scripture, to sit with one another in a way that's formative to us, God. I pray that we would reject external religiosity. And God, instead, we would allow you to work in the inside, Lord. God, so we invite you now. God, disarm us, Lord, with your word. Cultivate the soil of our hearts so that your word could grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been on a, a, in a series um, on Christian community. Uh, we've explored it from a few angles. If you've been with us, I hope and pray that you've been challenged. Uh, even more, uh, I hope that some of the ideas that we've talked about have made their way into your actual living. Uh, imagine if that happened, you know? Uh, I also hope um, that it has challenged you to think about the nature of your relationships um, or lack thereof. Maybe it's just exemplified and pointed out that you are, in fact, outside of <laughs> meaningful relationships. Um, but I hope uh, that it's challenged you, uh, maybe uh, above all, to be intentional in the relationships you find yourself in now. Um, if anything, I think we're seeing as we sit uh, and contemplate about what it means to do church, what it means to do Christianity together, um, that maturing growing Christian community does not happen on accident. It doesn't happen on accident. We're not just going to, guys, guys, we're not just going to stumble in to mature Christian community. It's going to be something that we decide to do. Maturity is optional, y'all. No one's going to force you to mature. And if we want to walk out mature discipleship to Jesus, there will be intentionality in our hearts and minds. And I pray that you've been challenged in that area in your own personal life, that you've been challenged to consider the intentional measures you are taking to press the gas in your life, right? To move forward with God. What's the next step, right, for you? I just pray to God. Let's that rest on your heart today. What is, what's the next step? What do you need to be doing right now? I guess we could just pray and go home. Um, so last week we said, uh, it's, up, it's, it's, up, uh, it's us, it's me and you, right? It's the relational dynamic between us um, that not this building uh, that God longs to dwell in. That's what we said last week. Uh, the New Testament's gonna call us living stones, it's going to say, it's going to give us architectural language to think about ourselves, the people, me and you, not the building we're in. Certainly there's all sorts of architectural facets to this building, but 
The Bible is going to call me and you a building, a house, a temple, right? And so like any house, what we said last week, is the point of any house is not just shelter, right? Because some sucker spends five mil on a house and another guy spends 150K. No, the point of a house, y'all, is to say something about the inhabitant of that house. And what we said last week is it is to be our relational dynamic, me and you, you and the people around you. It is to be the relational dynamic that we walk in and thrive in that is to speak of the being that has has inhabited us. That's a weird language, isn't it? But that's to be the thing that brings glory to God, Not, not cathedrals, not buildings that we can build. Us, me and you, that's what we got at last week. Me and you are the temple. We just pointed to how scripture longs for the community of his people, us, me and you, to bring glory to God, right? Not, not the fact that we can build massive buildings, but how we, check it out, <laughs> it's a big deal, how we talk to one another, right? How we love one another or how we don't. How we forgive one another or how we don't. How we extend grace or how we don't. And Jesus says, that is to be the thing that outsiders see that make them pause and say, maybe there's something to this. Not our services, <laughs> right? Not, not our lights and our projector. That's great. I love that. But there's something deeper that God's trying to get at when he calls us a temple, right? Remember, we often forget, guys, that the glory of God was seen most clearly in the humility of Jesus. In the, in the humility of Jesus, in his willingness to serve and to sacrifice for others. What's that mean? Well, that means God most often meets us not in the spectacular, not in the flashy, not in the entertaining often. I mean, he can, that's fine. Not in the fire, if you want to put it in biblical language. God doesn't often speak, not in the fire, not, not in the earthquake, but in what? A quiet stillness, something humble. The thing about quiet stillness is it is easily ignored, isn't it? Hard to ignore fire, hard to ignore an earthquake, but God seems to work in a way in such that he will, that, God, this is massive, that his action in the earth, what he is doing will be easily overlooked by you. Is that not profound? That the way God longs to engage his creation, his people are in ways that will be the most easily overlooked. Like what? Like a frumpy, unspiritual relationship. (laughs) God wants to reveal his glory in seemingly unspiritual, mundane arena of relationships. This is massive. Y'all, this idea is like wet leather on the whole spiritual loner, I'm up here on my holy mountain, I don't concern myself with the rabble mentality, right? You know know that mentality, you ever met someone like that? Like they come down from the mountain to greet the women and the children, you know? And they go back to hang out with the eagles, you know, with the halo up with, with the angels or something like that. I don't know where they got that, but they didn't get it from Jesus. That's not Jesus' definition of spirituality. He came to us in humility, not superiority. Right? See, we want to make spirituality spectacular. Right? We want to make it attractive to our pride. But the prophet Isaiah tells us there would be no physical beauty to attract us to the Messiah that we would naturally desire him. 
Nothing externally spectacular that we might think him as the spiritual elite. Rather, it was an internal reality, right? His humility, his willingness to sacrificially suffer, that would be the force of gravity that draws the world into himself. So it is with the church, y'all. It is to be unseen realities of our life that manifest in relationship that bring glory to God. That looks attractive to the world, God in our midst. However, like I said, we often substitute internal formation. So the work of compassion. You tell me compassion is not work sometimes, right? You know any people? <laughs> the work of relational kindness, right? Uh, with that, that's, it, you know, it's, we want an easy spirituality that doesn't require us to love and serve others, right? It's much easier to, or you can say it this way, it's much easier to build a building or to put on a, a good service or a good show than it is to fight in the trenches of real relationship. Much easier, right? Or you can say it this way. The church has often, I think, been guilty of substituting the glory of God for the glory of man. So what do I mean by that? Well, instead of exhibiting uh, and possessing the glory of God in Christ, which is humility, mercy, self-sacrifice, compassion, graciousness, that's the glory of Christ, right? So instead of these internal realities that can only manifest in relationship, we've opted for a cleaner, more controllable glory of man, which is grand achievement, strength, intelligence, like building a huge, awe-inspiring cathedral, right? That doesn't bring glory to God, y'all. That brings glory to man. God didn't build that. You built that. God built you, and he wants to show his glory inside of you. Are we chatting? That was last week, right? Uh, your humility, your self-sacrifice by reflecting the glory of Christ. That was, that was last week. So today, we're going to allow God's word, hopefully, to show us what that glory looks like in messy, complicated on the ground, seemingly unspiritual relationship. So let's look at the book. I'm going to read a large portion of this. Some of it we discussed a few weeks ago, um, but I'm reading the whole bit to remind us of the context of the chapter. In fact, if you have a heading over uh, the, uh, the, the chapter uh, of your Bible here, it might say something like unity in the body. I'm going to pick it up in seven. I'm going to read a good bit, and we're going to focus on the second half, okay? So Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Therefore, it says, when he, oh, oh I read that in nine. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all in all. So he, it's, an, and it's an aside that he's giving you there. Um, he's quoting Psalm 68, 18. Um, this is referring to Christ. Um, so in 11. He gave, uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, and evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You just got to sit with that. You just got to let that sentence marinate with you for a couple of years. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We dealt with that a couple weeks ago. Just want to give you the context. 
17. Now, this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What an interesting line in the sand to draw. Um, Darkened in your thinking, like the lights are off inside. And the reason the lights are off is because you're callous. 20, but that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, here, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor for we are members one of another. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with malice. Think of malice. Malice is under the surface hostility. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Notice that's the opposite of callous-heartedness, isn't it? Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the living God. We read the whole chapter um, because Paul is insistent to remind us that this whole list of do's and don'ts, that's what this feels like, doesn't it? Don't do this, do this, do this. There's a foundation underneath this that he wants to be sure we get, right? So we're, we're putting off this, we're putting on this, the new self, right? It's yourself, but it's you remade. It's a new you, right? Made in God's righteousness and holiness. And he uses the body analogy to help us understand, right? The picture of Christian community, diverse pieces coming together, right? And every time we, we read this, I just want to point out, Scripture is saying it is the diversity and the differences that are the gift in the talent. It's the differences, right? This should fundamental, fundamentally um, impact the way we view differences in the church, right? Uh, it uses the word giftings. It, we, we use that word gifting or gifted to describe someone who's particularly talented at something, right? Even today, we still use this. Even, you know, say, we say, oh, that she's a gifted decorator, right? Or he has a, he has a gift for woodworking or something like that. See, here the Lord wants to remind us of a fundamental understanding we are to have of our own gifts in light of community. Number one, 
that it's all a gift. And number two, that gift is to you, but it is not about you. Okay, that's all, that's all here. Verse seven calls your gifts, your talents, your contribution to those around you, the things you bring to the table, right? The value you bring to the table. It calls that grace given to you in seven. In 11, it says God gave. In other words, he ordained all the diversity of these talents as prophets, teacher, evangelists, so on. Now, why is this so important to state? It's almost obvious, too obvious, right? Well, it's important to state because if we forget this, we forget the very gospel that's formed us, that it's a gift. It's all gifts. We forget that it's all the gift of God, his son. That's already been given, right? And if we start thinking that this list is something we do so that we can get the gift of God, we've got the cart before the horse, You've missed the whole thing, right? No matter how long you've been a Christian, we are prone to forget the simple thing that everything we could give God, everything we could ever do for God is only and can only be response to the gift that he's already given, right? The only distinctly Christian motivation for putting off the old self is in response to what Christ has already done for us, right? This is why we can rightly say that all Christian behavior and action is worship, right? All true obedience um, is God birthed in worship, right? Something about God has already done. So he's saying the first and primary reason you ever want to put off the old self, you know, you ever want to put off anger or lying or selfishness. Those things can be very beneficial if you think about it. Lying, right? Selfishness, those things very beneficial if you can uh, arrange the parts just right. And he's saying the only reason we should ever put that stuff off and be kind-hearted and, and tender and forgiving and, is because God in Christ has already done that for us, right? So he brings it back to that in verse 32. Be kind to one another as God in Christ forgave you. So in some ways you can see that this whole thing is sandwiched by this idea. God has given. Do you see that in the beginning? And then at the end, 32, God, as God in Christ forgave you. It's all sandwiched in there, right? So, but there's another reason Paul gives as to why we should put away falsehood and speak the truth to his neighbor. And it's in 25. And he says, for we are members of one another. So now we're getting into the meat of what I really want to address today. Okay. For we are members of one another first, because God's gift and grace. Second, because you are members of one another. You belong to one another. So he's giving us some rationale here as to why we should, what? Cultivate patience. Why we should not let the sun go down on your anger, right? And you, you might say, well, it's, it's my anger. I'll let it fester if I want to. Who does it affect, right? I mean, anyone else? You just drive the whole way home, recycling the offense that someone slighted you that day. Did anyone do that? You know, you, you just recycle it. Oh, no one does that. Yeah. I like, I like react it out in my mind. And then I like make myself the movie star and imagine, oh, this is what I would have done. I would have said this, right? And then I just do it over and over again. It's remarkable. Anyone, I mean, so you're like angry at something, you know, and then all of a sudden, like something happens at work and typically you, you know, you drive home and you're aware of things, but then you start recycling that thing. Oh, I should have said that. And all of a sudden you're just home. You're just like, and then you're angry as a, you know, sack of rattlesnakes, you know? Hey dad, oh, what do you want, you know? Because you've just been, recycling it over and over. We, we have this absurd idea, guys. We have this absurd idea that no one else is affected by our sins. Who cares if I get pleasure in this or get pleasure in that? Who cares if, if I'm bitter and hateful and spiteful? If I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not a violent person. I mean, mercy, right? <laughs> look, at, look at the list 
of the sins, right? Look, look at how he draws a line in sin. Walk as the Gentiles do. Those accord, and then he contrasts as the Gentiles do and contrasts that to how uh, people who walk in the accordance of the likeness of God, how they walk. And if you notice that list that he gives, if you look at the whole thing together, futility of their minds, darkening their understanding. Do we have a slide here, I think? Hardness of heart, callous, sensual, greedy, impure, deceitful desires, anger, bitterness, wrath. Almost all of this list... Almost all of these things that he lists um, are internal descriptions. Very few of them require someone else to do, right? I mean, by my thinking, stealing, lying, and corrupting talk, clamor, those slander, those are the things that maybe require someone else to achieve those sins. But most of those sins can be achieved um, without anyone else around. Bitterness, right? Malice. Malice is inner, is intentions of ill, it's inside, you know, malice, right? Wrath, that, that can be something that, now why point this out? Well, because almost all of us at one time or another have given in to impulses we knew were sinful because we thought this won't affect anyone, just me, right? And so the promised pleasure of whatever that was outweighed our fear of God, outweighs the worship of God. And so I'm doing it. No one knows, no one's affected, no harm, no foul. It's what we say, right? It doesn't matter if you're addicted to porn, if you're burning with anger on the inside, if there's hostility and rage and you're trapped in bitterness and you have horrible, hateful, spiteful thoughts towards everyone you meet, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, you're fine. Now, y'all, this is a very popular way to assess right and wrong. It's very popular today. In fact, if you ask most people, how do you decide what's right and wrong? Well, they'll say, well, if, if it affects anyone else negatively, then it's wrong. But see, but you are denying... Uh, the spiritual reality of your life. See, if, if, if we, the problem with assessing right and wrong by only if this affects others is it leaves the interior of your life completely free game. And here the Bible's saying sin always affects others, whether it's internal or external. It's saying one of the reasons you've got to reject these attitudes is because you are now member. You're now members of one another. You're connected it matters not just for the glory of God, not just for your own flourishing, but it matters for those around you because you are members of one another. That's what it says in 25. Put this stuff away because you're members of one another. Or, or, or you, many have interpreted this idea, this idea that we're getting at here is in this sentence. No one sins in a vacuum. No one sins in a vacuum. It always affects others because no matter how good you think you are at hiding it, what's inside you will eventually seep out. It always does. It always will. C.S. Lewis had a way of talking about why the internal reality of your life matters, not only to God, not only to you, but for those around you. In mere Christianity, he compares humanity to a fleet of ships, vessels, seaworthy vessels, and he points out that there are several necessary understandings for the fleet to have if they are going to get from A to B, okay? So humanity as a fleet of ships, if we're going to get from A to B, you know, go through life successfully, all this kind of stuff, there, there has to be some necessary understandings that everyone has. And one of the necessary understandings that the fleet has to have is some idea of external morality, what's right and what's wrong. Right? This gets the ships going in the right direction. 
kind of rule of law, if you will, which of course, you know, we live in moral, a day of moral relativity where any universal claim of, uh, claim of truth is interpreted as a power grab, you know? <laughs> uh, but he says, uh, if we don't have this fundamental understanding of right and wrong, then the fleet will be running into each other. He, he thinks this is right, he thinks that's right, and so the, the ships will just be crashing into each other, he, you know, lying and cheating. They've, they have fundamental mis, uh, disagreements on what is right and what is wrong, right? Uh, and he says, as long as everyone agrees on what's right and what's wrong, then the, sh- the fleet can work together. They can, you know, go. Th- but he says, that's not the only dynamic going on in the fleet. If you as an individual, he says, don't work the necessary maintenance on your ship, if you don't oil the gears, you know, wash the deck, mend the mast, keep the steering in order, he says, then your ship, your personal ship will become an- unmanageable. And eventually, you'll crash into another ship, no matter how much you may agree that something is right and wrong. You may have a fundamental understanding, hey, this is wrong and this is right, but because you've not been greasing the gears, you've not been cleaning the ship, you've not, your, your, your vessel has become unseaworthy, it's not, and, it, and it crashes into another ship. He says this. I'm going to read you a, a quote. There are two ways in which the human machine goes wrong. One is where human individuals collide with one another and do another damage by cheating or bullying, disagreeing on a moral code. This isn't wrong, right? The other is when things go wrong inside the individual. You can get the idea plan if you think of us as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be successful only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get one another's way. And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has her engine in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If ships, if ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. When a man says about something he wants to do, it can't be wrong because it doesn't do anyone else harm. He is thinking it does not matter what his ship is like inside, provided he does not run into the next ship. But what is the good of telling the ship how to steer so as to avoid collision if, in fact, they are such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered at all. You see what he's getting at? Yeah. The man who says that a thing cannot be wrong unless it hurts another human being quite understands that he must not damage other ships in the convoy, but does he honestly think that what he does to his own ship is simply his own business? So you can think of this on the macro scale of morality, right, in, in, in an external, and we can think of this uh, on a smaller scale of us in this room right now, in the same way. I don't care how good our music or our sermons are, and some of you are like, don't worry about it, they're not that good, right? I, I don't care, like, how clear our communications are, hey, this is the way we're going, this is where we're gonna go, right? Unless each of us, is tending to our own spiritual growth and maturity, and as individuals, we will not go anywhere. Hopefully, you are inspired in some ways by what goes on here. But if you aren't as an individual dealing with your own sin, if you aren't confronting the sleeping giant of unhealthy behavior that you've tolerated for years, then it's all for naught, y'all. We're not gonna get anywhere. We can have a direction, but when it comes down to it, you will be unable to steer your ship in that direction because you are not doing the necessary hidden work of spiritual maintenance, right? If you aren't taking the next step, if you aren't pressing the gas, if you aren't individually 
asking God to sort out the internal chaos. Isn't that what God does? Doesn't he brood over the chaos in the waters and speak order and life into it? Isn't that what he did in Genesis? If you aren't going to him on an individual basis and asking him to sort out the chaos inside your own soul, it doesn't matter how good our communications is, we're not gonna go anywhere. We have to be pressing the gas as individuals, right? What are you doing? What are you doing right now to grow with God? Can I ask these kinds of uncomfortable questions? What are you doing right now to grow with God? What are you doing to address sin? And for so many of us, it's not much, right? And you have to hear this, guys. You have to hear this. Your maturity, your tolerated, your tolerated sin, however small it may seem, is affecting others. If you're sitting next to your family, those are the people it's affecting the most. Guys, can, I, can we just level? Those hidden, lustful glancing, glancings are doing something to you. They are not just affecting your own heart before God, they are affecting your marriage. I don't care how well you think you hide it. Ladies, those judgmental, critical thoughts that you think no one hears and is not affecting anyone else will always seep out of you onto others, no matter if you ever verbalize it. What I'm trying to tell you guys is no matter how many hours I pour into sermon planning, <laughs> no matter how many projects we accomplish, no matter how awesome our kids' program is or how cool our cafe is, which I enjoy it, right? <laughs> If as an individual, you are not doing the unseen cultivating that is required to mature, it's all for naught. We will not be able to sustain mature community. We won't be able to do it, right? Because we're still grieving the Holy Spirit. We've not put off the old self and put on the new, right? It's transformed lives, transformed marriages, transformed hearts that bring glory to his name. Now, before we get out of here, just look at the quality of, of community that he is describing in this passage. It says that these people are remade, remade. They've been transformed by the gift. It's like someone walked in the room and turned on the lights in their mind, and they now understand the world completely differently. This new community that's described here is no longer, here we go, cynical. They're no longer cynics. They're no longer calloused. They're no longer pessimist due to the hardness of their heart, but they are what? Tender-hearted. You know the problem with being tender-hearted? It hurts. You know the problem with being tender-hearted? It's unbelievably risky. You are exposed when you are tenderhearted. And it's why many of us are calloused because we were exposed and it hurt too much. And to avoid that kind of pain, you've become a calloused person. The scripture would say you've ha you have a heart of stone. But the good news is, you know, there's someone who takes hearts of stones and turns them to flesh, right? They speak truth. 
They don't steal, they work hard. Why do they work hard? Did you catch that? Why did he say work hard? So that they have something to share. And this is interesting. It says, they don't speak corrupting words, but only as good and building up, right? That it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, now, corrupting is not like cuss words, okay? Corrupting is, you had a conversation, and when you left, you were corrupted by that. Con- like, the, they muddied the water, right? Perhaps it was about a person. Perhaps it was about a situation. It's kin to slander, which is right next to it, right? It's, it's these people, this new remade humanity, they don't create divisions, by speaking poorly of others. That's the old self, he says. The new, the new humanity, they filter their words by what? It, that it may build up others, right? Give grace to others. Now, what's that all mean? The sharing, work hard to share, you know, using your words to build up. Well, it represents a fundamental shift in our view of community, right? From me-focused, me-centered, right, to a radically others-centered approach to community. That's what all this is getting at. Outside the gospel, we work hard to get more money for me. Inside the gospel, you work just as hard so you can be generous. Outside the gospel, you use your words to feel superior to others. Inside the gospel, you use your words to build up others. Inside the Jesus community, we use our words to lift others up, right? We see words as a means of giving Grace, the family of God, answers the question, should I say that? Not by, will it make me look better? Will it make me look more secure? Make me look stronger than others? But rather, if I say this, will others feel stronger? Will others feel more secure? What else does it mean when it says being built up? It means you use your words not to secure yourself, but to secure them. Make them feel stronger. Make them feel more able. Make them feel more confident. That's how gospel people use words, right? Gospel community says, my gift's not for me. It's for others, for others' sake, right? And thus, it takes, gospel community, guys, takes a dramatic and compelling stance against the overwhelming narcissistic self-interest that is applauded in our society at large. And the contrast could not be brighter. Are you seeing the picture, right? Jesus, the Jesus community is so radically others-centered that they see every engagement as an opportunity not to complain, not to self-express, right, but to build others up, to express what? The grace of God to others. They see every engagement as an opportunity for that. This is a radical understanding of community, is it not? This is the opposite of consumerism. See, consumerism says... Everyone else exists for my enjoyment. I can, you can, consumerism says you consume relationships like you would a buffet. So therefore, the ones you like, you go to. And the ones you don't like, you leave on the side. It's a buffet. You pick what you like. Many of us have ideas of community like that. It's a buffet for you. And so the cool ones that you like, you gravitate around. And the losers, you just leave them on the side, right? Not in Jesus' community. Not in Jesus' community. Because of Jesus, we've put our self-interest to the side and now use our words to build up others, give grace. It's almost, this picture of community is almost unbearably oppressive until you put your little story into God's larger story. Hmm? Jesus, what do I mean by that? Until you get that Jesus became low to lift you up, 
this will be oppressive to you. You're not gonna do it. Until you understand Jesus disregarded his self-interest to secure yours, you will not do this. You won't stand a chance at it. See, you've missed the gospel. You've missed it. And so this feels oppressive. You secure your self-interest. That feels wise to you. The gospel says you abandon your self-interest for the interest of others. And you will not do that without the gospel bearing its weight on you. You won't do it, man. Until you understand that Jesus became low to lift you up, right? He served you, covered your sins. He endured to communicate God's love. Until you understand that, you will not be able to endure relationships to communicate God's love to them, right? What we're saying here is Jesus did all these things, so, so too shall I. That's what we're saying. This is what it means to follow him. Isn't, isn't that what all this is getting at, right? Jesus called himself a servant, so too shall I. Jesus washed the feet of others. Now that's, that's classy stuff, isn't it? Let's just line up for that. Jesus made himself a slave. That's what it says, a servant, so that what? Others would be refreshed. Gospel community says, so too shall I. I will humble myself so others are refreshed. I will go without so others go with. That's gospel community. And until the gospel lands on your heart, this will feel oppressive to you. God have mercy on us and our raging insecurities that block us from following him by serving our brothers like this. I've been praying over and over this week that God would break the back of pride. Because truly, truly, I say unto you, it is your pride that is your primary obstacle in relationships and community. Don't let the rampant consumerism of our day form how you view the Christian community. Refuse it. Turns you into a cannibal turns you into a cannibal when you let consumeristic impulses influence how you think of the church. When you start treating people like a buffet, that is anti-gospel, right? Let me leave you with some good news and some bad news. You're like, well, that all sounded bad, Chris. So (laughs) here's the bad news. No one sins in a vacuum. That's the bad news. Your sins affect others, sometimes in blatant, visible ways, sometimes in unseen, subtle ways, but no one sins in a vacuum. Here's the good news. No one is obedient in a vacuum either. So just like your sin affects others, those, of that, those around you, no matter how much you think you can hide it, you know, your obedience will affect those around you, no matter how hidden it is. And from the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like Jesus thinks that a lot of our obedience is supposed to be hidden, Right? And this is seen most clearly in Romans 5. Let me read it for us, then we'll get out of here. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. You see this? It's the same thing we're talking about. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So just like at the cosmic level, we supernaturally benefit from the obedience of Christ, so too, on the relational level, does your obedience affect others around you? And it's not always in apparent ways. Some are very apparent. I mean, think if you just walked out what Jesus said, as I, as I have loved you, love others. I mean, that would be pretty obvious, right? But the slow inner transformation of your soul into a pure, radiant saints of God is not always 
obvious at the beginning. But slowly, in small steps, one back, one forward, falling down, getting up, falling down, getting up, falling down, getting up, in the pushing, in the surrender, right? In the trenches of fighting back the darkness in your own heart, your presence can become life-giving, Jesus-pointing, sacrificial, solid rock in the community. You can become the kind of person who shows up not just to be refreshed, but shows up to refresh others, who serves to lead, who sacrifices to bless, who speaks to grace, who, who, yeah, who speaks to grace people. That's it, yeah. Jesus took, y'all, the way of sacrificial service. He lived a life focused on others. He patiently endured, patiently suffered. He did not cry out. He was humble even in his suffering. And you cannot follow him unless you are willing to follow him there as well. At some point, you have to reckon with the humility of Jesus if you intend to follow him. So we're just going to stay. We're going to right where we're at. We're going to pray. So pray with me.